We stand at a crossroads, a crossroads where accountability through journalism is more difficult than ever. There has been an 80% decline in advertisers' support of quality news journalism or news of any kind. In an almost identical period, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that there's been a 50% decline in the number of people working in newsrooms in the United States. And the public reaction to anything a brand does is more visceral than ever. You have to also, you know, recognize that more so than in our heyday, when you and I were working in big corporate America, our society has been scientifically polarized by algorithms designed to inflame reaction. And so in almost every instance, it's not that you're going to piss off some people. You're going to piss off 49.9% of the people if you do it right. That leaves brands in a difficult position when they're caught in the crosshairs. Lou Pascalis has an idyllic and practical solution for addressing that. The key to brand safety and suitability is to talk about your principles with all the stakeholders before there's an incident. Everyone feels bought in and aware of what would happen. And I was given feedback that, yeah, this is painful, but we've all been very you know, clear and you've been very transparent about what we need to do in these situations, so you made it easy. And that was one of those life lessons that you learn later in life that you're like, wow, that's the key to everything is, is really being very transparent upfront and reciprocity and, and communicating. Brand safety and suitability, corporate reputation and ESG, journalism and the future of advertising and the role of AI are among the topics that we discuss with Lou Pascalis today on Timeless Leadership. This is Timeless Leadership, where we explore the values and principles that drive extraordinary leaders. We look for the timeless virtues that are just as relevant in the 21st century as they were in the first century. Universal truths that will help make us better versions of ourselves. Hi, and welcome to Timeless Leadership. I'm your host, Scott Monty. So good to have you back here with me, or if this is your first time, welcome. This is where we talk about the intersection of leadership and principle and the things that drive extraordinary people to do what it is that they do. Today should be an interesting conversation because Lou Pascalis is really at the intersection of marketing and communications. And it's not often that we get to talk about this bridge or this divide, depending on how you look at it. In my time at Ford, although I was in charge of social media, I sat within corporate communications. And my role brought me to the halls of marketing quite frequently. And it became apparent over time how important each one of these respective functions is in a company the roles that they play, and how they can support each other. And
and in the discussion with Lou today, I think it's going to become eminently clear that businesses and marketers need to support the practice of journalism, not just for the sake of getting a message out, but really for the sake of society. And Lou's take on this, as he doubles down on helping businesses understand their core purpose and their core principles, is truly an important one. And I hope you'll stay with us through the end here because we do get into some of the details as to how that can work in the future. Lou Pascalis is known as an outspoken champion for marketing innovation, governance, and the advancement of the art and science of marketing, as well as a strong advocate for journalism and marketers' unique responsibility to support news organizations in their valiant efforts to defend truth. He is the chief strategy officer of Ad Fontes Media, a public benefit company that's dedicated to restoring advertisers' investments in reaching audiences in quality news journalism. Ad Fontes does this with a unique technology that allows them to measure, mitigate, and monitor bias and reliability in a manner consistent with their values and principles. Lou also serves as CEO and founder of AJL Advisory, a consultancy focused on helping marketers to improve their business narrative and tech companies to better understand marketers and their rapidly evolving needs. Previously, Pascalis was president and COO of the marketing trade organization MMA Global, focusing on the future of marketing. Prior to MMA, he spent three decades in client-side leadership positions in high-level roles at Bank of America, American Express, and many roles at E&J Gallo. He sits on the advisory boards of Snapchat, Vox, Infosum3, and Possible, among others, and is very active with the Association of National Advertisers and Trustworthy Accountability Group. Lou makes his home in Manhattan and enjoys international travel. And he's a lifelong F1 fan. Lou Pascalis, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Oh, thank you. That was the most flattering introduction I've ever had, Scott. Much well, hey, uh, your, your words, your bio simply put to music. So there you go. Ah. And you, you might like to know this just for your resume. The music I chose was from the, the YouTube Clips uh, database there, but it's called Saving the World. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> That's very, very flattering apropos having there you worked go. with YouTube back in the day. Hey, I love that you are are not a fair weather fan. That you, in fact, have been an F one fan for a long time. What what's the recent uh, engine behind the marketing community seemingly uh, cleaving itself to the F one community? You know, someone asked me uh, on an interview once what I thought the greatest marketing move I've ever seen was, and it was Formula One partnering with Netflix on a series called Drive to Survive, which mm. was really about the personalities uh, in the cockpit and in the paddock. And one of the things that helmet sports always suffer from is that the fans don't really get to see the faces, mm. right? Yeah. And what Drive to Survive, which actually was the brainchild of you know someone from our industry, Scott, the advertising industry did, 
was it got the helmets off and it gave people a, a really good view in the behind the scenes drama. You know, there's only 10 teams, 20 seats, each team has two cars, and 33 people in the world who have the kind of license that allows them to drive in Formula One. So it's musical chairs every year with 13 people not getting a seat and 20 people getting a seat. But I'll tell you what, more than anything, what Drive to Survive did, I think it really changed the ratio of male fans and female fans. I remember Mm. my girlfriend saying to me uh, the first series when it came out, she's like, wow, those guys are cute. (laughs) <laughs> and now, you know, we go to one or two races every year and uh, I'm sure she sees the cars, but she really wants to walk in the paddock and, you know, see the, the drivers. And uh, uh, it's it's been a brilliant renaissance for the industry and that's brought an awful lot of new money into the sport, which has been both good and bad. It, yeah. it's, it's been both good and bad. Well, I think it's, you know, one of the, the cliches we hear about marketing is to humanize the brand. Well, this is exactly what an effort like that does without necessarily stating it outright. Um, that's exactly what you're getting. Well, there are a, sure. lot, a lot of human sure. elements behind uh, what we're going to talk about today. And I'm, I'm hoping it's a very wide ranging conversation. Uh, you and I go back, gosh, about a decade, decade and a half or so back when we were both working in corporate America, but talk a little bit about your journey to uh, what we now know as brand safety and and how that evolved throughout your career and what changes you saw, particularly over the last decade or so. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I spent most of my career running media buying inside of large corporate clients, usually with other functions too. At American Express, I had content marketing. I had mobile marketing, which at the time was a new thing and things like that. And when I got to Bank of America, um, I was also given responsible for marketing data enablement and uh, things like that. And I was with my boss at an ANA, Association of National Advertisers meeting in uh, Fort Lauderdale one year. And the first time I had heard of brand safety was in that meeting. And I want to say that was maybe 2015. So it wasn't terribly long ago. And I remember my boss at the time turning to me and saying, I hope you're all over this because I'm kind of vomiting in my mouth. And someone was giving a a report about at the time where the center of gravity was, which is wanting to avoid um, adjacencies to uh, ISIS beheadings, all the bot fraud that was taking place. And it was a very narrowly casted capability. And so with her backing, we set up the first brand safety and suitability function in the country for any Fortune 500. I took a senior executive on my team. I asked her to do the role. She was like, are you sure? She's still doing it now. And I think she's become one of the nation's foremost authorities on it. But hmm. it's it's a it's sadly a growth industry, Scott, because the <laughs> threats today yeah. look very different than the threats of a couple of years ago. And so we've kind of cleaved it from brand safety suitability. And suitability has to do with things like, does the vendor we're doing business with um, reflect our values and how we operate the company? Mm -hmm. Do they respect people's privacy choices? Are they really conscious of, you know, the unknown unknowns that come with the territory to quote Donald Rumsfeld? And, you know, it's it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting space for so many reasons not the least of which is you have to think one step in front of the threat actors. 
but we institutionalized it to the point where we were reading out four times a year to the management team on all manner of issues. And my employer at the time, Bank of America, is a very conservative and reputation-oriented uh, company. And there was no risk uh, that you could use to justify media investment. You needed to make sure the company you're doing business with was above board and treated their customers with the same care and respect that we did. And it caused us to make some really painful decisions about some major platforms at the time mm. uh, that just did not reflect our values. And uh, I was, I'll forever be gratified by the support the management team had for those decisions because the key to brand safety and suitability is to talk about your principles with all the stakeholders before there's an incident. So mm. everyone feels bought in and aware of what would happen. And I was given feedback that, yeah, this is painful, but we've all been very you know, clear and you've been very transparent about what we need to do in these situations. So you made it easy. And that was one of those life lessons that you learn later in life that you're like, wow, that's the key to everything is, is really um, you know, being very transparent upfront and reciprocity and, and communicating. Yeah. Well, and, and this is interesting because it really falls on the heels of the last two episodes. Um, recently, I just, uh, just kind of a monologue essay about integrity. The previous one, we spoke with Rick Wilson about his decision to uh, abandon his party and uh, work against the presumptive nominee for president. It can be really tough to have principles and then stick to them. And for brands, who are constantly enamored by reach and by the big numbers that are promised by various platforms, whether they're television or digital or whatever. What was it like internally having those discussions and having to potentially walk away from something where the impact to the brand in terms of awareness or um, action with respect to advertising um, had to be abandoned because of those principles? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity in my career to work for five really tremendous chief marketing officers and, you know, in, in the function of buying media and returning, I hate this acronym, but it is the term of art that we use now, uh, return on advertising spend. I like, I would like it to be called return on relationship, but that's a, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> but None of the five CMOs that I worked for ever asked me about ROAS or ROI. Those things are not really C-suite conversations. They're terms of art in our business, and they're very important diagnostically to ensure that you're getting fair value for money. But it was remarkably easy to answer your question to create brand safety and suitability dynamics because it's, everyone jo it's everyone's job in corporate America and certainly in financial services, to mitigate risk. That's job number one. It's everyone's job to ensure that we're not doing business, as I said earlier, with people who don't reflect our values. And in every other part of the business, that function goes through vendor procurement, and there's quite a bit of scrutiny to make sure we're doing business with the right people. Media has always been able to operate outside of that. And I would say for the first half of my career, I enjoyed that because we were able to move fast and bring on board vendors as they became more valuable. But 
later in my career, I came to realize that that is actually not a good thing. And you want to be governed by the same set of principles that the rest of the enterprise does, because the weakest link in the chain is the one that people will find. And in the era that we were setting this up, the court of public opinion moved from news to social media. And all of a sudden, everyone was a publisher and anyone's video could go viral anyone's screenshot of your ad next to something unsavory could immediately become not only reputational risk for the enterprise and reputational risk, by the way, is the thing CEOs care about. There are five other kinds of risk that you manage in corporate America, but the one that gets CEOs out of their job is reputational risk. And so except concerns, one, uh, currently. which is <laughs> fair point, uh, fair point. Uh, but, you, you, you know you know where I'm coming from. And, and like, yes. there's no amount of advertising value that is a good trade-off for creating that kind of jeopardy for the C-suite. Uh, and so it's fairly easy to set up parameters. Yeah. Do you lose a little bit of a media efficiency? Yep, you sure do. But at the same time, you've got to look at the long-term value because if there's a customer boycott because you did something with your advertising that offends people. And there's been many opportunities since October 7th to do exactly that. Um, You know, the, the, the the risks far outstrip the potential rewards. Yeah. And I think what, what you've outlined here is what's been long noticed and that there is, or has been at least a rift between the marketing team and the corporate communications team. (laughs) And increasingly I've seen more, chief communications officers now reporting to the CEO, providing advice and counsel from a strategic perspective, particularly around reputation, as you said, versus reporting up through the CMO like they used to. So talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of this divide between communications and marketing, which really shouldn't exist because the two need to work in lockstep to do their jobs most effectively. Yeah, you you really hit a nerve with me on this one, and I'm going to try to be as fair as ba- fair and balanced as I can, Scott. But you know, keep me on the straight and narrow here. There has <laughs> definitely been a rise of the corporate communications function relative to the influence of the marketing function, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I've seen on a couple of occasions. Uh, during the uh, during my time at American Express with Small Business Saturday, when the CEO is in the green room about to go on the Today Show, and the only person in the room with him is the corporate communications person. And that's the time when they're the most nervous. There's a live mic, and there's 13 million people in the audience, or at least there were in those days. And, you know, you didn't want to get it wrong. And so there's a bond of trust. And if you really think about it, the corporate communications person's job at the end of the day is to burnish the narrative and reputation of the CEO. And so they have the CEO's ear. At the very same time, as you and I have spoken about many times over an adult beverage, marketing has an attribution problem. And I'm not just talking about the mathematical way that we show that for every dollar you invest in marketing, you get a dollar thirty-two out which is reliant on regression and other things that don't explain well in the boardroom. But just in general, what is the role of marketing? I've worked in organizations where marketing is nothing more than a glorified sales support function. 
And I've worked in organizations where marketing cultivates the relationship between the consumer and the brand and maybe hose a path forward for sales, but doesn't have accountability for sales. In both of those functions, however, marketing doesn't get credit for what it does. Let me give you a very specific example. So someone walks into a banking center on Main Street USA and says, gee, I want that travel rewards credit card that you guys are offering on TV. And there's a person in that banking center called the lobby manager. And he or she has a binder. And the binder has those little plastic sleeves with all the different credit card samples. Yes, that's still true in 2023. (laughs) And they flip over to slide four and they say, oh, you mean the premium deluxe travel rewards card with double benefits on ice cream? Yes, that's it. Now, in most corporations, the banking center gets 100% of the credit for that sale and the TV investment gets zero Hmm. because it's very hard to prove without sophisticated triple M or market mix modeling models that rely on regression. And regression is something that doesn't sell in the boardroom. And and let me go one step further, if you'll indulge me. 15 years ago, when we started working together, marketing was responsible for the customer experience. Marketing was responsible for the digital journey. Marketing was indirectly responsible for growth of business and directly responsible for brand. Today at the same leadership table where the CMO sits, you have the chief growth officer, you have the chief experience officer, you have the chief digital officer, all of whom have very discrete KPIs that say, for example, if you give me $100 million, I'm going to sell 38 million more widgets for you. And then we get to the marketer who now no longer has direct responsibility for those functions. And she gets to say things, if you give me $100 million, I can grow relevance and favorability by double digit percentages. And the CFO, who is the CEO in waiting in many of these companies, Mm. is sitting there going, okay, those three individuals just gave me a number of widgets that I can put down in our business plan. And the CMO is talking about relevance and favorability and changing for the better. And I don't know what to do with that. Does not compute, Will Robinson. So the money is coming away from marketing because it doesn't appear as accountable and empowering the things that it enables without imbuing credit back on that enablement. And the access to leadership is being throttled by the chief communications officer and his or her cronies who are really just trying to mitigate reputational risk and see marketing as a red herring. That's a big challenge. But then again, at the same time, um, I I think it gets completely blown open of exactly what that impact is on the negative side when you've got an example like, well, take Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, There's a reputational hit that actually cut into sales cut into market share and you know i know a lot of people got fired over that um but it's it's difficult to prove uh when something when you're doing something that negates a negative experience in other words you're protecting the brand and no harm comes to it versus you know not doing it and you know having that negative impact so you're you're almost having to prove a double negative 
And it becomes a real challenge for anyone who needs to stand up next to a chief digital officer that's got direct impact of widgets sold. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think that was our industry's finest hour um, with people getting fired in the aftermath of the Bud Light issue. You know, yeah. management's got to have your back. And yeah. the thing about social media is it's still in that era where it's instinctive and intuitive. It's, it's, you've got to respond at the speed of culture. We all envy right. a thing, God, it was probably 10 years ago that when, when the lights went out in the Super Bowl and Oreo went dunk in the dark. That's how fast you need to move. And you can't run that up the flagpole with management. Right. They've got to have your back and empower you. Uh, we would do something every year at Bank of America around the World Economic Forum in January in Davos, Switzerland. And it was one of the most fun programs I ever worked on because everybody who needed to be in the room uh, in our control center, which was in uh, the Digitas offices in Boston, mm -hmm. and you know, something would happen there. We had people on the ground and they would, you know, text in or message us or call and say, hey, this just happened. And, you know, we would prepare a tweet. We would usually attach some content to it. And we approved in the room. And, you know, our, our goal was uh, less than 10 minute approval. And when you're working like that, you know, you're going to get it wrong sometime. And I actually don't think, oh, I don't want to re relive the whole Bud Light thing, but I just, uh, I think that, Every management team needs to look at that and say, okay, we're going to get some stuff wrong. Yeah. And sometimes it's going to get blown up beyond all manner of proportion. Yeah. But we've got to have our teams back if they really want to do their best work for us. Well, and then it, it really comes down to knowing what your principles are. What do you stand for? Yeah. And yeah. to me, I was watching that whole thing play out. And if I were on the, the Bud Light team at the time, my response would have been, hey, we sell beer to people who drink beer. And that we used to have this problem at Ford. You know, should you cater to this audience or that audience? No, we cater to an audience of people who drive. That's it, right? Yeah. And you're going to piss off some people by talking to one particular audience. Well, guess what? That message isn't for them. But I, I think we've gotten into a point now where, uh, to your point, that you need to move at the speed of culture. Culture is moving so quickly and in such a knee-jerk reaction and with such fierceness in some cases, yeah. violence, everyone, and it's crazy. Everyone is a publisher. Everyone is a publisher now. That's that's what we've done. But, you know, you have to also, you know, recognize that more so than in our heyday when you and I were working in big corporate America, our society has been scientifically polarized by algorithms designed to inflame reaction. Mm. And so – in almost every instance, it's not that you're going to piss off some people. You're going to piss off 49.9% of the people if you do it right. <laughs> and more than 50% of the people if you do it wrong. And that's a reality that a lot of companies have uh, become paralyzed by, right? The best way to win is not to play. Let's not put something out, even though this is a moment where, you know, leaders take time that will have to change because pretty soon we're going to be polarized on everything yeah. and you know you just you can't be afraid to speak and i do think a key point that you just made though is at the end of the day we're selling to people who drive we're selling to people who are hungry we're selling to people who need credit you know it, it we we need to get out of trying to cater to or avoid all of these special interests that might get triggered and be ready to like endure the pain 
if they are momentarily triggered and stick to our knitting and what makes us great as a company. Yeah. And and so that in particular interests me because we've seen a rise and then a little bit of a waning of things like ESG and mm-hmm. DEI, you know, these, these acronyms that, you know, some people call woke. And, and whether you believe that or not, I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying that's what some areas of the market look at it as. How do you voice these principles which feed into things like ESG and DEI and still try to walk that tightrope of not angering too many people? Boy, what an excellent question. You're really good at what you do, Scott. Um, (laughs) Let me answer it this way. It starts with understanding what's really important to your consumers. And it also recognizes that there's actually an opportunity, and I'm going to frame it this way, and you may push back on me, but there's an opportunity for for institutions, large marketers to step in and play more of a role on some of these issues that we tend to bundle into ESG, where governmental institutions, the realities of budgets or their own fears of polarization are no longer able to play as robustly as they might have before. Mm. And so I think ESG, when done well, is something that you can actually go to your core customer and say, we are doing these things to play our role in society. I remember at uh, Bank of America that we were very concerned about recidivism, which was the disproportionate which is the disproportionate incarceration of minorities in America uh, at alarming rates. And you would say, well, what does the bank have to do with recidivism? But what you actually are doing is you are reducing the diversity of the workforce. You're actually making less people available to play important roles. And that was one of the, not the only, but certainly one of the sort of rational considerations, let alone the emotional ones. So I think marketers, I think I think this whole temporary diminution of ESG is on a public facing perspective. I think because of this whole, as you talk about woke agenda, which even the most ardent decriers, if you will, of wokeness can't even define, <laughs> has caused companies to talk less about what they're doing. But I don't think it's caused companies to do less of the things that they do. Yeah. I, it, it is a real issue because if, if, if private institutions, if marketers, if big Fortune 500 companies aren't allowed to step in and fill the gap, and if governmental institutions, either through budget, fear of getting caught up in the culture wars themselves, or you know whoever might be in the White House, and certainly we've seen evidence of that with the previous president, where those institutions were diminished significantly in stature and are still dealing with the aftermath of that. We have to have another mechanism, and, and large companies giving back to make the world and the communities that they work in better is the best way I know to do that, and, and people need to be made to understand that. Yeah, and I, I think we don't talk often enough about stakeholders. You hear a lot about shareholders, but stakeholders, uh, that's a wider audience. And not only includes your investors and your employees and your customers, but the community at large. And to your point, doing something for the betterment of society because that makes us all better. And, you know, if, if I can be capitalistic about it, it makes us better consumers in the end. It's just a better ecosystem. 
So yeah, we that, used to talk about that. We used to talk about the triple bottom line a lot. Triple bottom line. What, what's that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great concept. Um, in a triple bottom line, first and foremost, you're you know you're you're doing your core business function. You you want to to return a profit for shareholders, right? So that's the most common bottom line, particularly for a publicly traded company. And then the second part of that is to do better for your employees. Your employees increase. You know, we're every day in corporate America. There's a war for talent, particularly in STEM. And if you can tell your employees, we're doing these things to make your world better. We're doing these things to make your, our society and your community better. We're also doing things for you, which, you know, giving you on-site daycare, giving you the kinds of things that make your quality of life better. That's the second bottom line. And that helps with retention. And retention is a direct driver of, of, of um, incremental profitability. And then the third is for society at large, the group of stakeholders um, that go beyond the people who have a direct financial relationship with you. The people that actually determine determine your reputation in the marketplace, and this is the full gambit of people that can be everybody from an ancillary business that your company does business with, to the elected officials in a community, to people who are in NGOs around the world, all of whom have the ears of the influencers or our influencers themselves, and say, you know, that company over there, they're doing really good work. When Yvonne Chouinard gave Patagonia, the company that he built he built over the course of his life, to the people who are fighting climate change, that was an amazing thing. And that's what I'm talking about when, yeah. when I'm talking about this larger group. He literally gave them this recurring asset, which drove money to a bottom line to help to really address uh, climate change and global warming. And I think you're going to see more of those kinds of selfless acts from corporations moving forward. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you don't have to be a, an official B corporation to make that happen. You can do it as part of your, uh, your regular ongoing operations. So that leads me to uh, naturally the, the next point in our conversation, which is about uh, your association with Ad Fontes Media. What is AdFontes, and why did you decide to throw your hat in the ring there as chief strategy officer? Yeah, um, so AdFontes Media, uh, AdFontes stands, uh, or is Latin for to the source, is focused on rating news for reliability and bias. And uh, it was started by a young woman, uh, Vanessa Otero, who I now work for, because during the 2016 election, her family was becoming very polarized. And she tried to illustrate for them at a family gathering, using what we now refer to in what has become iconography and landscape, the media bias chart, a very rudimentary early version of it that she drew by hand, to show them that you guys are listening to this news on the right that is low reliability, and you guys are listening to this news on the left which is also low reliability. And then you over here are actually listening to news that's very centrist. And at the time, you know, she was really kind of finding her way and what those principles were. Flash forward to today, where we have 70 fully trained human raters who have rated, you know, uh, nearly 100,000 articles. Uh, and we rate articles, podcasts, video segments, whatever they might be in news, only news and um, score against a set of principles that are very well 
defined and trained in. And so when we rate an article using our human raters, you have one person who self-identified as left-leaning, one person who self is self-identified as more centrist, and one who is right-leaning. They meet on, on a Zoom call and they discuss and debate an article by article by article. And you know, these sessions are going, you know, eight hours a day, six days a week, so we can stay in front of it. Now, more recently, we stood up an AI capability that has been trained on the four years of articles we've rated and now can rate 100,000 articles a day in near real time, which wow. has allowed us to open up a lot of news inventory for marketers and their agencies who are looking to reach the erudite, sophisticated, high discretionary income audiences that news has delivered since I started in this business. And, uh, you know, I've been on a kick to defend and protect news for many, many years and would use every opportunity I could at industry trade events or in small groups to talk about the important role marketers play in supporting journalism. Journalism is the only profession, Scott, that our constitution calls out in the first article of the Bill of Rights. It's the only profession that the constitution calls out at all for its unique role in keeping elected officials honest and working for the people and not working over the people. And boy, do we need that now. Yeah. But what's happened and, and why I'm here is in the 15-year period ending with the dawn of the pandemic, so March of 2020, there has been an 80% decline in advertisers' support of quality news journalism or news of any kind. I don't know of any other industry that has endured an 80% decline and survived. And to that point, in an almost identical period, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that there's been a 50% decline in the number of people working in newsrooms in the United States. Now, think about that, Scott. Wow. We're talking about a period that goes back to 2005, 2006. We were, we were just setting up our first iPhone. Oh, my gosh, it takes pictures. Look at this. You know, it didn't have film. You didn't consume news on it. You didn't consume content on it. And, you know... We now have all these people that are self-publishing on their their smartphone. You know, we we're, we become accustomed on the evening news or, you know, CNN or MSNBC throughout the day to seeing iPhone video, cell phone video, um, covering an event, right? So everyone's a reporter, which means everybody's a journalist, which means everybody is actually writing their opinion. And we need journalism to debunk misinformation. And you and I both know there's a war on truth in this country. I remember eight years ago, Kellyanne Conway on the front lawn of the White House answering a reporter's question about why did President Trump say what he said? And her response was, well, the president was using alternative facts. And like an idiot, I Googled alternative facts thinking, what is that? And, you know, think about how naive that was. Oh, and that God was, bless you, you know, Eight years ago, right? You know, I'm like an idiot. But that's the reality. Facts are now shoppable. They're fungible. You can go find somebody saying anything at all that comports with your vision or your bias. So what we're trying to do and, and why I joined is to go back to advertisers and say, we rate news every day. These are the publishers and platforms that are producing high quality, minimally biased, highly reliable news that reaches the audience you want. And that will drive your business. Yeah. And I'll finish with one statement here. 
as you well know from your time in this business, the number one thing that drives business, even in this you know, programmatically driven, AI-infused audience of one segment era is unduplicated reach. And because advertisers have decreased their reliance on news by about 80%, as I mentioned earlier, there is tremendous unduplicated reach in news now that can drive their growth agenda. And we're seeing really positive signs of young people, Gen Z and millennials, actually going back to quality news sources because Mm. they don't want to get duped again like they've been in the last few elections. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it comes at a time when you've got this new owner of Twitter is he, he purchased it with the express intent of being pro free speech, which comes from the first amendment. Well, the first amendment, as you very clearly articulated there, Lou also includes freedom of the press and citizen journalism is not journalism, which you also just expressed. So, now we've gotten to a point where there's been this, um, and, and I, there, there's so much stuff I want to go, go into here with what you just talked about, but there, there's so much going on with respect to Twitter and advertisers boycotting, fleeing, whatever it may be. You know, the whole dust up in the last few weeks with Elon at the, at the DealBook conference, completely shooting himself and his company in the foot. So you've got advertisers potentially fleeing from Twitter, and then at the same time, You've got journalism, which sorely needs advertisers. But what an opportunity is before us right now for local journalism, for uh, the support of the advertising industry, for people that are fleeing from these misinformation-heavy sources to actually pour it into what society needs right now. You know, I'm so glad you went there, Scott, because it's, it's not just what society needs right now. We're at a crisis point, and you mentioned local journalism, which is particularly important when you start to think about some of the dynamics that are really hewing away at the foundation of our uh, our nation, our grand experiment in democracy, our society, and arguably our economy. We've lost 3,000 of the 9,000 newspapers that were in operation in 2011, and, and newspapers is a broad term here because a lot of them now are predominantly digital. In fact, of the 6,000 remaining local publications in the United States, less than a quarter publish daily. Most are reduced to weekly. And most have seen dramatic reductions in the people working in their newsroom. Let me tell you a quick story about that. So the Salinas newspaper, which I cannot right now think of the name of, is 163 years old. And it serves that that part of the Central Valley where all the lettuce comes from. And it's it's really one of the older papers in the nation, believe it or not. Well, they were purchased by a major conglomerate. I won't mention any names, Gannett. And um, they made the decision to eliminate the newsroom entirely that covered the local school board meetings, that covered the local zoning meetings, that reported on the gerrymandering that was happening, that was changing the way people get elected in their city. But they didn't close the newsroom entirely. They kept one person there to answer the phone. And her responsibility is to take obituaries. So the only sign of life in the Salinas newspaper's newsroom is death. And I think that's emblematic of what's happening in our country. If we lose local journalism, there's going to be 
virtually no mechanism to keep the electorate informed. There's not going to be any accountability. Uh, there's not going to be a young 24-year-old kid fresh out of school on his or her first job leaning on the wall outside the courtroom in the hopes that when people come out, he might get a story that he can file before deadline. That's how news is made. And we're losing that. We're losing an ability to keep our elected officials accountable. We're seeing the aftermath of that in Congress. We're seeing, you know, people come out and say, I know January 6th was an insurrection, but I'm not going to call it that. When the Speaker of the House releases footage, as he did earlier this week, of the September 6th looters and rioters, but has his staff blur out all of the faces because, quote, he doesn't want the Department of Justice to go after these people. We need journalists all over that, not just reporting it as a fact, but interrogating as to his motivations. You know, it doesn't matter if you're left-leaning, right-leaning, or not-leaning at all. Uh, you need to be informed. And so what Adfontes Media is trying to do is just ensure that there's enough reporters out there by getting advertisers to spend more money in news and praying that the money that those publications make is re-expressed in journalists in the newsroom. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a it's a valiant effort. And as you say, one that is sorely needed right now. And I wonder, too, if there's another role for advertisers as well. I mean, it's it's all well and good to, uh, to, to funnel money into journalism, but staying on January 6th for a moment, if you recall, after what happened happened, uh, there were a whole bunch of uh, members of Congress who did not vote to certify the election, and they were, at least in the short term, pummeled by advertisers by corporate lobbyists who withheld their money because these people clearly sided against the constitution well as most things you know the the heat wears off and then the money flows back in and to me that strikes at the very heart of what you were talking about at the top of the show here with regard to standing by principle if companies are willing to put their money down to support journalism, then they should equally be as hesitant to give money toward the very beings who are not adhering to the principles of journalism or the Constitution or any of the rest. Boy, I wish that were true, but um, I don't see a path forward for that, to be honest with you, Scott. As much as I agree with you in principle, there isn't, there's a cat in the middle of this called the K Street Lobbyist. And K Street is the street in Washington, D.C., where all the lobbyists are, as, as you well know. And not only won't that happen, but what they typically advocate is, let's give this candidate a dollar and her adversary a dollar. That way we're covered when one of them is elected. So there's an equivalence problem here, and it's not uncommon. So we're not voting, we're not investing in principle when it comes to supporting a candidate. We're usually investing to not lose. You know, you know, what's that, that thing, you know, playing to not lose will never allow you to win, but playing to win is the path to winning when there's a better yeah. way to say that. But, 
you know, and unfortunately, that's the conventional wisdom. And again, it's that safety mindset. And it comes out of that same sort of part of the brain that corporate communications is let's do no wrong. Let's not get involved. Let's, you know, make a statement that, you know, like it's like if you've ever read something PR wrote, Scott, and I'm sure you've had these frustrations, they say virtually nothing by design. It's, it's the minimum amount of information with nothing uh, gritty enough to potentially cause controversy. And, you know, or, or the company has a relationship with an individual politician that is very useful to them. You see this in the defense industry quite a bit. Uh, and they contribute the maximum to the incumbent if that's the one they have the relationship or vice versa because it's a useful business tool. And, you know, we've seen uh, – uh, we've seen recent evidence of that in the state of New Jersey where that can go too far too fast. I don't know about you. I don't have any gold bars lying around my apartment, but you know, you, you might, uh, but not for that reason. So I, I wish that were true and I wish companies would actually stand up on principle and maybe will come a time when part of ESG includes that. I think we saw a little bit about that around uh, environment and sustainability. You know, I understand a lot of companies were at COP28 in Dubai, a lot of companies that go beyond the obvious special interests of like, you know, the fossil fuel business or whatever it might be, but companies that are really trying to advocate for a better future. So maybe on specific issues, that's always fraught in our government system too. I don't like the single issue voter because that's not what makes our country great. But maybe there are some areas to hope in that, but I don't think companies are ever going to, you know, just pull their backing in a big way from somebody who does not uh, comport with their principles. Yeah. Maybe George Santos is an exception. Well, <laughs> well you can find him on Cameo now. Um, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as politicians are willing to take money, there will be companies and individuals willing to give them money. So uh, I think therein lies the problem. No, no solutions here for that. No, sir. So, Lou, as you think about where the industry is moving in the next five years or so, and I know so much of it is um, at touch and go right now with AI and the speed of light developments there, do you, in your gut, do you have a sense of optimism, a sense of dread? How do you feel about where things are going in the next five years? With regard to advertising, I'm probably the most optimistic person that you can have on the show. Um, I think the alleged recession was a mechanism for a lot of companies, both on the buy side and the sell side, to pare back the bloat that had been created during a pandemic when advertising became a more important means of reaching the consumer while they were living, working, and sleeping in their home. And digital media and uh, direct-to-consumer devices, and or my favorite one, as someone who lives in Manhattan, Bopiz, which is buy online, pick up in store. I'm of the school that buy online, deliver to my freaking door because I'm, you know, I'm not going out to the store to pick it up. Why would I do that, <laughs> right? You know, like Bopiz, that's a really dumb idea, but a lot of people did it, right? But everybody got bloated, and now when things came back a little bit more toward normal, where you know, traditional retail is playing a, a role that is bigger than it did during the pandemic, but a slowly diminishing role because everyone is enjoying the convenience of the online order. So there was a, at best, and if I'm being charitable, a right-sizing of people who worked in advertising. And, you know, even estimates, um, Brian Weiser just came out uh, with an estimate where he revised upward by about 1.9%, I believe, 
uh, the, his 2024 estimate, and I usually listen to him. He's usually right. Uh, that's Madison and Vine for your listeners. Um, and it's a subscription service you can, you can use. Um, so I'm optimistic about three fundamental areas. There's been a drive towards addressability. Uh, there's been a flight to quality. And there's been a technical revolution that goes well beyond programmatic. So drive towards addressability. Uh, we're seeing things like retail media networks. That's Walmart, Walgreens, Kroger, Albertsons, Lowe's. Everybody is now selling advertising um, in their pages because they have great first-party data, because there's a lot of down-funnel opportunities to influence at the point of purchase because people are buying online, however they're picking it up. Um, and you know the challenge there is that none of those platforms have enough scale to satisfy advertiser demand when you look at legacy media like linear TV, even today in its much diminished state, it dwarfs that. So what they're doing, because they have login first party data, they're forming effective partnerships with uh, the, um, you know, the, the Hulu's, the Netflix ad supported of the world, where you've got to log in, you're still seeing ads, so you can opt out of those ads. But um, you now have a symbiotic relationship between the marketer's first party data the retail media uh, network's first-party data and down-funnel ad experiences, and then the Netflix or the Hulu or the whomever else, Amazon ads, up-funnel experience, which is all tied together deterministically in a privacy-compliant, safe way. So that addressability leads to the ability to tailor better ads, and it also drives more engagement with those ads. So Mm. that, that is only limited by scale. So I, I see a, a lot of activity there. I also see that, you know, the recent ANA programmatic transparency study really revealed some rather alarming news in the programmatic space. Uh, one in four impressions are being delivered to made for advertising sites that are low quality, uh, dubious editorial, very high ad to edit ratio, and often unmeasurable. Uh, in spite of the fact that none of those sites appeared on any of the study participants' inclusion lists. So programmatic has a lot of concerns, not just that, but that's one example. And so marketers are going back to things like, you know what? In major markets where there's a lot of commute time, terrestrial radio, iHeartMedia is a great investment, for <laughs> example. You know, And linear TV. Maybe the measurement is as good is not as good, and it's not as addressable. Man, do I get the scale? Man, is the reach there? You know, I'm, I'm really able to measure the impact uh, in try you know in time proven ways. And my third and final point is being able to leverage AI to find actual audiences of people who are truly interested in your product or service not using proxies. We've used proxies for far too long and they have very dubious connection to actual people who are in market for your product. A proxy might be a zip code. Uh, It might be some online behaviors that are very far afield from what actual buyers in the marketplace today deliver. And so, and truth be told for your audience, I've gone to work for delivering what are called custom bidding solutions. And uh, in addition to my work with Advantage Media, I'm working with Chalice Custom Algorithms, and they go to the client and they say, what are the KPIs that matter to you? And it's not just performance. It can be sustainability. It could be diversity, equity, and inclusion. It can be compliance. 
and you can build a custom solution that the marketer owns, not the platform like Meta or Google, that you can use anywhere on the open web. And in some cases, some of the walled gardens as well, and that's starting to change for the better. But instead of having to rely on a black box that you can't audit, that is not governable, that you couldn't explain to a regulator if you're in a regulated community, uh, regulated category, you're able to build something that is transparent by design, it's governance friendly, it's imminently audible, and you determine the KPIs. It's not the publisher saying, well, we got to make sure we hit our yield first and foremost. So we got to put that into the bidding solution. So I didn't know that technology existed in January. And Scott, I've been doing this a long time, but I met the co-founders of this company, Ali Manning and uh, Adam Heimlich, and I am so over the moon. I wish we had this tool when I was leading advertising. Uh, and they're not alone. There's others that are out there. Uh, I'm biased. I think they're the best. But you know, you could literally say, okay, here are all the things I'm being asked to achieve. We have a sustainability goal of making sure our carbon footprint doesn't exclude, exceed this. We want to work with diverse creators to make sure that we're supporting that community. We want to work with diverse-owned media. Instead of using lists, you actually let state-of-the-art software optimize a multivariate solution that allows you to achieve all of your goals and probably do it without as many people having to manually make those decisions. So it's an efficiency play in addition to driving your media effectiveness. So I, I encourage people to look at the emerging technology and start experimenting with it. The category is called custom bidders and you know there's a number out there. I like chalice. Well, that's fantastic, Lou. And clearly there is a lot to look forward to in the industry. And you know, while you're out there, you may see if you can steer some of them toward podcasts. <laughs> for sure i'd be more than happy to uh i've really enjoyed this scott it's always so great to talk to you and i think what's awesome is that for the first time in as long as i've known you your listeners can eavesdrop on the type of conversations we usually have without a microphone well there you so, go and uh, without an adult I, beverage I this time around well you may not have an adult beverage. So <laughs> i'll just put it that way but uh, I, I you know you can't see me but hey, you know, we, i hope we get to do this again i really it's been an honor to be on with you my friend and i uh, i wish you the best of luck with this and uh and a great holiday, too. All right. Well, Lou Pascalis, thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership. Well, what fascinates me about Lou is not only his commitment to the operations of marketing, the hows of getting things done, but more importantly, the whys, the purpose and the principles behind what it is that we do. And that's something I think that we all need to take into account, no matter what our function is, no matter what our industry is. What are the principles that we stand by? Because ultimately, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Our theme is Americana Aspiring by Kevin McLeod. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at timeless at scottmonte.com. I welcome your questions, your feedback. Next week, I will just be here solo. Be happy to answer any questions you might have, a challenge you're facing, a conundrum you might have. Write in and let me know, and I'll try to address it. Meanwhile, in the week ahead, I hope your actions inspire other people to learn more, dream more, do more, and become more, because you, my friend, are a timeless leader. I'm Scott Monty. Thanks, and I'll see you on the Internet. <laughs>